0: Well, welcome to Living Hope Church. We're so glad you've joined us this morning. If your children are going down to Children's Church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Melody. Uh, If your kids are staying with us, there are activities on that back table. They're free to grab and take back to their seat and use throughout the sermon. Um, And uh, there is a sermon notes designed for them that goes along with it. Come and see me afterwards. We'll have candy for them. Um, so if you are here last week, last week we wrapped up our uh, mini-series, sermon series on family by looking at Leaving a Legacy of Faith. If you missed any of those few sermons, you can go back uh, and watch them on YouTube by searching Living Hope Green River. Today we're going to venture over to the Old Testament and we're going to uh, look at one of the most amazing stories and depictions of God's love for us uh, and the hope that we have in Him. Uh, we're going to look at the very small but incredible book and story of Ruth. Uh, And so today, we're going to walk through this book and see God's love on display, see his hope on display, and see his sovereignty on display in the life of Ruth and in our lives as well. Um, In the book of Ruth, things feel dark and they feel hopeless. But what we're going to see is that doesn't mean that God isn't present and that he doesn't care. God, as we will see, is very much present and he is working things for good. And we see that same message played out throughout the Bible in our own lives. God is good. He is present. He keeps his promises. We just talked about that. He is faithful. He loves us. He redeems any and all that will turn and follow him. And even when things are hard and dark, he is good and his plans will prevail. Uh, If you've been around our church for for any length of time, you may have noticed a trend in my sermon illustrations. Um, And many of them revolve around sports. Um, I love sports. I love playing, watching, coaching sports. Uh, But there are times in life that my parenting and my coaching and my ministry roles, they get in the way of me watching my favorite sports teams. Uh, And when that happens, I will go into what I call technology silence mode in hope that I might get to watch the game in full without knowing the outcome. I put my phone in Do Not Disturb. I let the family know that I'm behind, so please don't call or text. I avoid TVs and even the the radio when I'm driving in hopes of, of getting any score updates. If you're a sports fan, I'm sure you have been there before as well, but it seems no matter how hard I try and what lengths I go to avoid technology, the score always finds me. Whether it be inadvertently at a restaurant or when I first turn on the TV at home, it's got the final score right there or stray notification on the phone. Inevitably, the score finds me. and I can't avoid it. Now, if I hear my team lost, then I just... Don't care about that game anymore. But if I find out my team won, it takes all of the angst and anxiety out of the game because I know that no matter what happens in the game, my team is going to win. And so I'll go back and I'll watch the game with joy. And I watch the game with joy because I know the outcome. Now, it's not the same as watching it live, but I don't fear when my team throws an interception because I know they're going to win. I don't fear when my team falls behind because I know it's all going to work out in the end. And that is the kind of hope that the Bible, the hope that a Christian can have. The Bible tells us that in the end, God's plans will prevail for our life and for the world if we follow him. So no matter how we feel in the moment, we can have faith that God is good and he will keep his promises and he will provide. We can know with assurance that no matter how dark it may be today, heaven is promised for us. And so when we hear hope in the Bible, we hope with the assurance of the outcome and assurance and confidence in the one making the promise. We talked about that in the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That is the difference between hope uh, in the the English language and biblical hope. In English, the word hope often implies something we want to happen. We hope that will happen, but we're not sure it will happen. English English language hope is me before a game saying, I hope that my team wins. But there's no assurance of that. That's not what biblical hope is. That's not the hope we're going to see Ruth have. That's not the hope that we can have. Biblical hope, by contrast, is not something you are unsure of, but something that you are very sure of. It just hasn't happened yet. It's something you look forward to with expectation that reshapes your entire outlook on life. Biblical hope is when you know the end result and you look at the world or you look at your life with anticipation that things are someday going to change, that God will provide. We see that ultimately in eternity in heaven. When you know the outcome of the game and you know your team wins, you can have that kind of hope because you know it's going to change and your team will be victorious. That's the kind of hope we're going to see in the book of Ruth. That's the kind of hope that we are promised as followers of Jesus. Hope and confidence that no matter what is going on or how life feels, God will prevail. His plans will prevail. Our eternity, our future is secure, and he is with us. The Bible says we can walk through life with this kind of biblical hope because our God is greater than the world and greater than the darkness we walk through. So as we see that on display in Ruth's life, we too, as followers of Jesus, can take hold of that promise that God is near and he is greater than the darkness. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going to see in the story of Ruth, God's love on display and his hope offered to you if you will turn and follow him. So the book of Ruth, if you want to look for it, it is sandwiched between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's a very small book, maybe four or five pages. Um, and, it, and it comes after the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, it traces this cycle with the Israelite people where they will follow God and things are good, and then they will go their own way and they will find that things are bad for them. And they're in one of those cycles when we come to the book of Ruth. They have sinned against God. They are facing a trial. They are facing a storm. They are facing darkness. And that's where we see that God is still present. So let me pray for us, and then we will kind of walk through all of the book of Ruth. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are good. God, we thank you that you are with us. God, we thank you that we can have hope and confidence in you, even when it feels like our world is unraveling or we are walking through darkness or through the unknown. God, we thank you that you are very present and that you are good. And that you, ha- that you lead the way forward. So God, I pray that today as we walk through the book of Ruth, Lord, I pray as followers of you, we just be encouraged by your love. We would be encouraged that you are still in control uh, no matter what's going on in our life. And God, I pray that there's someone here that, that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. God, they would see your love on display in the book of Ruth. They would see your love for them. That even when they have nothing to offer, you love them. And you offer them hope and eternal life in you. So God, I pray there's someone here that doesn't know you. They might turn and follow you today. Yeah, we love you, and we praise you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I said, the story of Ruth takes place in one of those dark cycles. It's right after the story of Samson, and things seem as bad as they could be for the people, and we're going to see for Ruth and her family. So we're in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So because of sin in the land, this promised land, this, this land that was supposed to flow with milk and honey, that was intended to be a blessing to the world, but because of sin, it's under severe famine. And so the people, they are fleeing this promised land, this land that they dreamed of. The days are dark, things are looking bad for God's people, but we're going to see that God can absolutely still be trusted when things are hard. Verse 2, it says, The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Killian. This is an interesting No, but in Hebrew, these sons' names mean sickly and spent. These are likely nicknames, but these were dark days for the family and for the people of God. Can you imagine being called sickly and spent or, or calling your kids sickly and spent? These are my two kids, sickly and spent, sickly and worn out. Right? Today, you might get reported to Child Protective Services if you called your kids those things. But it was a different world then, apparently. All right, verse three. It says Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, sickly and spent. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So they're in a foreign land. They are marrying foreign women, uh, these women that would have worshiped other gods, something that was forbidden by God. They have they have, they have left God's plan. It says, After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian, sickly and spent, they also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food to them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home back to Israel from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So this is, this is darkness for the people, but also darkness uh, for Naomi. I mean, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. and Now she has these two daughter-in-laws with her. This is a, not a good time in Naomi's life. Verse 8 says, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. So Naomi here, being a good mother-in-law, says, Go. You guys go back. You are free from carrying me. Go back to your family. Go back to where your fathers and your brothers can care for you and provide for you. Remember, this is not the 21st century. It was difficult, if not impossible, for women to provide for themselves. And there's culture. There weren't women CEOs. There weren't women vice presidents. They, couldn't, they didn't hold jobs, so it was hard for them to provide for themselves. So she sends these ladies off to go and be provided for by their, by their families. Verse 14. At this, they wept uh, They wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and she left, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and back to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. All right, this right here is about as as great of a picture of conversion as you will ever see. She says, I am with you. Your God is my God. Your people are my people, and I will go wherever your God leads. Or this is what conversion still looks like today. It's us. For us, it's accepting Jesus' free gift of salvation, and then saying, God, you are now my God. I am one of yours, and I will go wherever you lead me. The things that were once important to me, I'm leaving behind to follow you. You, God, are my Lord, and I will go where you lead. Ruth wants to stay with Naomi, and she has trusted her life and her future to Naomi's God, the God of the universe. Verse 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Verse 20. She says, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So as we head into chapter two, we see things are, are not looking good for Ruth and Naomi. Life is so bad for Naomi, she refuses to be called pleasant any longer, but instead trades her name for Mara, which just sounds bad and means bitter. Right? They are widowed for Ruth. She's heading off to a foreign land. They have no job, no means of income. But then we see this glimpse, this hint of hope as they arrive, just as the barley harvest is beginning. And so that's the first point today. We'll try that. All right. We'll go with handheld. That's weird. We changed the batteries. Anyway, uh, so they they get there, and they get there just as uh, the barley harvest is beginning. And our first point is this, and that is that God provides hope even in the darkest of days. I love what Barrett McCarty, professor of preaching at Southwestern Seminary, he said of this, don't lose hope in the good that God will do for you in the future. In this darkest moment, when they are at rock bottom, when the story is at its darkest, there is a barley harvest just on the other side. I love that. Hold out hope in God because the barley harvest is coming. In the darkest of days, there is a barley harvest just on the other side. And we're going to see that this barley harvest in God's hands is so much more than a barley harvest for Ruth and Naomi. And it's so much more than a barley harvest for the people of Israel and for us today. So let's pick back up. Chapter two It says they arrive in Bethlehem, but they have no food. They have no jobs. They have no hope. And so Ruth does what poor people did in those days. She went into the field to glean or to pick what was left in the field. If You go back to Leviticus chapter three. That's an exciting reading. But if you go back to Leviticus chapter three, God had commanded that the reapers, the harvesters could only or should only pass their field once. They should harvest the grain, and anything they dropped or anything they could not carry out on their first pass, they were to not go back and clean up. They were to leave it for those that were in need. This was a simple way of providing for poor, for the poor. God had a plan for care, to care for them, and that was the generosity of his people. So they would go through, they would grab all the wheat they could, and anything they couldn't, they would leave so that people could come back behind and glean. And so that's what Ruth does. She heads out to glean uh, in the fields, provide for her and Naomi. And that's when we come to verse 3. It says, so she, Ruth, went out, and she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, other versions say, it just so happened, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. That name should sound familiar. And in this, we see two great things beginning in that barley harvest for Ruth, and two things that would have excited a Jewish audience. First of all, a relative has entered the scene, Elimelech. He was a relative of Elimelech, and suddenly there is hope for Ruth and Naomi, hope that there might be someone out there to help them in their desperate situation. Secondly, this phrase, as it turned out, or just so happened, was a common phrase in Jewish literature, and it was a reminder that God was still in control and that things were going to work out. Right, this is a wink to the audience that things are going to get better. My wife, she loves to read these happily ever after books or watch these happily ever after movies, This is the hint that we are in the middle of one of those. This is like when you're watching the Christmas Hallmark movie and the driven workaholic from New York stumbles into the small town struggling shop and she just so happens to bump into the handsome, recently widowed shopkeeper. There's a lot of widows in Hallmark movies. And all of a sudden we know how the story is going to end. It's just a matter of time until they realize they're meant for each other. And that's what we get here. This is our hint that we are in one of those books and that God is in control. The author is cuing us that God is in control, and it's no accident that she's arrived in Boaz's field. God is sovereignly orchestrating the events to provide hope for her and her people. And that's our our second point. God is still in control, even when life feels out of control. Things are terrible for them, but we get this glimpse that there is hope, and God is still in control. Verse 4, it says, Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And just like that, our hero has arrived on the scene. Boaz means strength. He is setting up to be the hero of the story. He is a man's man. He is wealthy. He owns the field, and he is loved and respected by those that know him. Then Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? He says, what's this girl's story? Verse 6, the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. I love this, that everyone already knows who she is. Don't you love a small town? Like, everyone has heard that the Moabite came back with Naomi, and that's who she is. But this detail tells us Ruth's story. And Ruth's story is not a pretty story from the context of a Jewish audience. For a Jewish audience, she has three big strikes against her. First of all, she is a Moabite woman. And the Moabites were hated and regarded as a cursed people. You can read about that in Numbers 21 through 25. Secondly, she is a widow, which in their culture was not a good place to be. She was hopeless without a provider, and at this point, uh, older or she was older, and, and other, other Jewish men would, would pass her by, or people would pass her by because she's already been married. Thirdly, she is poor, and that was a sign to their culture of God's judgment against her. So this isn't the kind of girl that you would expect a Boaz to look twice at. On top of that, she has been gleaning in the field all day. Her, her clothes are likely covered in dust and, 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 and her brow covered in sweat, her hair a, a mess. That's not how you hope or not how you're supposed to meet Mr. Right in the story. You're not supposed to meet him while you're dumpster diving, slimy and grimy, but that's the scene in chapter 2, and that is exactly the point. Ruth is not a picture of attractiveness. She has nothing to offer in the eyes of the world, but Boaz is representing something greater than the average man in Israel. He is giving us a picture of God's love for us when we have nothing to offer. He is a picture of the hope that we have even in the darkest of times. We'll talk about it more later, but there is nothing about us that makes us worthy of God and his forgiveness. The Bible tells us we are broken, sinful people, and yet God still loves us and makes a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed. We look at this verse all the time. It says, but while we were still sinners, while we were broken and defiled with nothing to offer, that's when Jesus dies for us. There's nothing worthy about us, but Jesus looks on us and he loves us and he dies for our sins so that we can be redeemed. And that's Ruth. There is nothing that she has to offer. And yet Boaz looks upon her and he has compassion on her and he has love for her. And that's our next point. Even in our our sin, in our darkness, when we have nothing to offer, God sees us. He loves us and he makes a way forward. And here's what uh, Boaz says to her. He says to, to Ruth, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. So as a Moabite woman, she would have been expected to serve a Jewish man. She would have been expected to fetch them water. But Boaz says, you are not our servant. You are our family and we will serve you. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to the men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. So Boaz invites her to to appetizers with a crew. Uh, Ruth eats her fill, and then he advises men to make things easy for her and leave grain for her. Ruth gleans, and she gathers an ephah, which is about 30 pounds of grain, and then she heads home. Naomi, as you can imagine, is pretty excited, and, and she asks Ruth, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth, her mother-in-law, about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today, and you can almost feel the anticipation as Naomi waits to hear his name. The name of the man I worked for today, his name is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and to the dead. And just like that, Naomi is no longer Mara. She is sweet again. She is no longer the bitter one because she has recognized that God has not abandoned her, but he has been with her all along. She has recognized that God is good and he is in control. Even though life felt hopeless, God was still present and he still loved her and had plans to show her kindness. Have you ever had those moments in your life where it felt like God had left you in a hopeless situation, but then you get that little glimpse of hope and you realize once again how good God has been, how faithful he has been uh, throughout the journey? She added, Naomi added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And in that we see hope. He's a guardian redeemer. This is going to be a key word throughout the rest of this, but what was a guardian redeemer? Uh, Your version might say kinsman redeemer. Well, in their day, if you were in debt, your property was deeded out uh, to someone else in order to pay your debt off. It's kind of like in Monopoly when you run out of money and then you start deeding over your properties, right? So you can get that money back from the bank so you can pay off your debt. And the deal was like in Monopoly. You could buy back the land if you had the money to buy it back. But if you couldn't buy it back, you could also have a family member do this for you. Thus, the kinsman redeemer. But there were three stipulations to be a guardian or kinsman redeemer. First, you had to have the right to buy the property. You had to be the closest living relative willing to do this. And that's going to be important in our story. Second, you had to have the money to buy off the debt. That, that seems obvious. you got to have money to buy off the debt. Third, you had to have the resolve and willingness to do so. And so we're going to see if Boaz is qualified and if he will be willing to do this. In, Naomi's in in chapter 3, verse 3, Naomi says to Ruth, Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the plates where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down he will tell you what to do i will do whatever you say ruth answered so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do when boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down in the middle of the night something startled the man he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet it's quite a picture that would be startling to have someone you don't really know, lying at your feet. But obviously, culture has changed uh, today. I would not recommend that. If you fall asleep on someone else's bed, you will probably end up in jail that night. But, uh, but that wasn't the case there. And so Ruth, unfamiliar with this, she trusts Naomi, and she goes and does what she tells her to do. According to the NIV application commentary, Naomi was telling Ruth to act in accordance with Israelite custom and law. It was common for a servant to lie at the feet of his master and even share part of his covering. By observing this custom, Ruth was informing Boaz that he could be their kinsman redeemer and that he could find someone to marry her or he himself could marry her. And so this is an act of humility on Ruth's part, requesting Boaz to save them, to reclaim the family inheritance and asking if he would be willing to marry her. But when we head to chapter 4, we find out there is a closer relative, a closer relative who has the first chance to be the kinsman redeemer. It says, as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz explains the situation to the man. He says that, and the man says that I will redeem the land. The man thinks to himself, I have the resources, I have the opportunity, and I could always use more land, so I'll take it. But then Moaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow and, and the dead man's widow in order to maintain the land of the deed of the dead with this property. So Boaz explains the land is great, but it comes with this caveat. There's an old widowed lady and there's a Moabite woman. Verse six, at this, the guardian and redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it then because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself or I cannot do it. So this guy hears of the, the old lady and the Moabite woman who we said earlier were not highly thought of and he passes on this opportunity. And with that, Ruth and Boaz, uh, Boaz becomes the the guardian redeemer, and they are married, and they live happily ever after. There's our happy ever after story. As we said, things look dark and hopeless for Naomi and Ruth, but God had not abandoned them. And in God's sovereignty, he is going to use the man, Boaz, who save and redeem their lives. We also said things look dark and hopeless for the nation of Israel, but their hope comes at the end of this chapter. In verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth. So we see it's come full circle, and it's a celebration of life and God's faithfulness to Naomi. But the hope for God's people and for us, and to Abraham is seen in verse seventeen. It says, "The women, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And it's from the line of David that the Messiah Jesus will come, and he is our kinsman redeemer. He is the, the greater version of Boaz. God has kept His promise to Naomi. He has kept His promise to Ruth, to Israel, and He has kept His promise to us in this story." The line of David, the line of Jesus, has been preserved through Boaz and Ruth, the Moabite woman. And we'll see that Jesus had the right, the resources, and the resolve and willingness to be our Redeemer. And he's our hope today. That's our final point. Our final point today is that Jesus is our Redeemer. He was promised, and he was born into the line of David. He was born fully human, and he is the only one with the resources. Because he lived a sinless life, giving him power over death. He was the only one able to give his life for us. For sinners, And he had the resolve and willingness to go to the cross and give his life on our behalf. He is our Redeemer. And we, like Naomi and Ruth, we are in desperate need of saving. We are sinners that the Bible says are destined to death apart from God. But because of our Redeemer, Jesus, if we put our faith in him, we are given life. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. The gospel says that we are not just bad people made good, but we are dead people saved and made alive by our Redeemer. That's a picture we see in the book of Ruth. It begins with death. We saw death all over, the death of a husband, the death of her sons. But it ends with life and a genealogy that ultimately leads to Jesus, an ultimate victory over death. In the book of Ruth, the the word Redeemer is used 23 times in four chapters. And in that, we see the unloved are loved, the poor are restored. We see bitterness become sweet, and we see hope come to the hopeless. That's the theme of Ruth, and that is the theme of the Bible. It is the heart of the gospel and God's message for you and I. The gospel is not that God rewards the successful or God grants heaven to the righteous or the victorious. The gospel, the hope of Jesus, that anyone who is in need, anyone who is thirsty can come and drink and be saved. The Bible says we were created to be children of God, to be in relationship with him, to be in his presence, to, to, to spend eternity in heaven with him, but we, we sold it away through sin. Our lives are dark and hopeless, and we have nothing to offer in our sin, the Bible says. Yet Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer, our redeemer, loved us. Unlovely and as sinful as we were, he redeemed us back to him. God sees us like Boaz saw Ruth. He, He loved us just as we were. It wasn't even that God loved some future version of us. It wasn't that he loved what we might become, but he loves us in our sin. He loves us in our brokenness. And it's in that state that God sends Jesus to die for us. We said earlier, while we were still sinners, he gave his life to redeem us. God doesn't forgive us because of anything we have done, because of anything redeemable about us, but he invites us, forgives us because of who he is, and because of his love for us as our redeemer. The hymn, Just As I Am, it's a famous hymn. I'll I'll read you some lyrics in a second. But it was written by a woman named Charlotte Elliott in 1834. In her life, her brother was a pastor, and he was trying to start this new school for girls who couldn't afford to go to school. And so to fund this, they held a a bazaar to raise money for it. And everyone around her was busy cooking and sewing and building things, except for her, except for Charlotte. Her health was bad. She was bedridden. And as she watched everyone else use their, their talents and their gifting for God, she wondered if she had anything to offer him at all. She said the story says she doesn't sleep the whole night, but then she remembered that God had saved her despite who she was. And she realized that God didn't accept her because she had something to offer, but he took her in her sin just as she was. And if he took her from her sin that way, just as she was, then he would use her in that way too, poor health and all. And so the next day, she, she woke up and she wrote the lyrics to this song, Just As I Am. And this song is amazing because it's arguably been used, at least in our century, to lead more people to Jesus than any other song in history. Because it was the hymn that was played at just about every invitation Billy Graham gave. And it says this, it says, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, and blind, sight riches, healing of mind, yet all I need in thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, what welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And the hope of the gospel, the hope of Ruth, the hope of that hymn, is that Jesus calls us in our sin just as we are. Boaz saw Ruth at her worst, and he loved her, and he redeemed her. And Jesus sees you and me in our sin and our brokenness, and yet he desires to redeem us if we will turn and follow him. Today, you can be redeemed uh, if you will turn and follow him, or perhaps your, your story is you have been redeemed. Just as in our story where the Israelites and Elimelech's sin brought heartache and famine, our sin brings difficulty in our life. It, it messes up relationship. It leaves us empty, scarred, and broken and messed up. But the beauty of our Redeemer and the gospel is Jesus doesn't call us to fix ourselves and then inherit his reward. But just like the story of Ruth and the story of the Bible, God simply calls us to humble ourselves and turn and follow him. So do you know Jesus as your Redeemer? Have you ever received his forgiveness, his newness of life? Or are you still waiting? If so, he says, come just as you are. If you have experienced that, maybe you're here today and Jesus is your redeemer, what great news to celebrate. He has saved you not because you are worthy, but because he loved you in all your brokenness, all of your filth, just as Boaz loved Ruth despite her mess. Be reminded of that today and let that, don't let that good news stop with you. We live in a world of brokenness, of emptiness. And what our world needs is not condemnation, but our world needs a redeemer and we know his name, share his name. And so as we wrap up today, a few different places we could be. First of all, do you know Jesus, your Lord and Savior? Have you ever experienced his forgiveness, his redemption, his promise of eternity? Have you ever trusted him with your life? If not, you can do that today, and you can experience his forgiveness. Secondly, maybe you're here, and you're walking through a season of the unknown. You're walking in a season of darkness, of, of bitterness, maybe. Would you trust in the biblical hope of God? Hope that lives with confidence that God will be victorious. He will triumph. He is with you in the midst of it all, and he is good. If you're a follower of Jesus, would you turn your darkness over to him in these next few moments? Would you tell him about it in these next few minutes? And would you trust in the hope and the power of God who turns darkness to light and life to death? Would you trust and find hope that he is with you and he is in control? Then, lastly, would you offer yourself, your follower of Jesus, to make your Redeemer known? to share his hope with the world around you today. So Emily's going to come and she's going to play for us. Uh, as she plays, we're just going to take a few moments to reflect. Reflect on, do I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Am I walking through darkness? I need to trust in his hope and his presence. Maybe I need to share his hope with someone else. So I'll, I'll pray, and then as I pray, Emily will come and play, and we'll just take a few moments to, to reflect. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you love us and care for us. God, we thank you that despite our sin, despite our brokenness, that you sent Jesus, and he was willing and able to go to the cross and give his life on our behalf. God, pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as as Lord and Savior, as Redeemer, God, that they would trust you today, that they would trust in your sacrifice, that they would turn and follow after you, that they would say, where you lead, I'll go, because you are my God someone here doesn't know you that way. Maybe they would trust you today. God, I pray for for those here that, that are your followers, Lord. Life is often hard. It is difficult. It is dark. There are days of bitterness and unknown. God, I pray that in the midst of those days, Lord, that we would have hope in you, biblical hope where we trust that you are in control, that you are with us, that you are good, that you are making a way forward just as you did for Ruth and Naomi. So God, I pray that we would, I have confidence in who you are today, no matter what life looks like. God, I pray that we would be bearers of your hope to the world around us. So, God, I pray in just these next couple of minutes, Lord, would you speak to us? God, would we turn over our lives and trust them to you? Would you give us hope in you alone? God, we love you and praise you. In your name we pray. Lord, we do uh, thank you that Jesus has indeed paid it all, and God, and that in you forgiveness is available uh, and new life is available. Lord, I just thank you for the story, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness, and God, I just pray that you would help us to find our hope and our confidence in you alone. God, we love you, and we praise you in your name we pray, amen. All right, before we leave, just a few announcements for you. Uh, if you're new to Living Up Church, there should be a welcome.